Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and the Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now, presenting world-renowned author, trial lawyer, CLE lecturer, and court-approved expert witness on securitization of death, Neil Garfield. Why banks can't prove their case in foreclosure with evidence. Why do they win anyway when they don't have the evidence? How can you stop them? Hi, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, March 10th, 2022. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida. There must be a system of rules and laws governing evidence. Not a sexy topic. If we didn't have those rules and laws, we end up dealing with people hurling accusations at each other with no resolution of any dispute. And the point of having a court is to resolve all disputes, at least all disputes where there's an actual injury involved. It's this system that most people chafe at because they don't understand it. They don't understand it because they didn't go to law school and spend time in court practicing. That's why it's called the practice of law. The more you practice, the more you learn, and the better you get at it. Probably the most frustrating thing for homeowners is that Most of them know by now, or they've been told by people who do know, that there is no legal claim against them. But they continually lose in court. Why? Well, a simple answer might be that because the investment banks have endlessly deep pockets that can pay any lawyer almost any amount of money to say almost anything, making those lawyers rich, and deep pockets that can pay anyone else to produce fabricated, forged, fake documents that weaponize the court policy of moving the case along. The primary way that courts move cases along is by making assumptions, sometimes announced, sometimes unannounced. They make assumptions about things that the judge thinks are not in dispute or are not subject to any reasonable dispute. Only experienced litigators fully understand that. The opening narrative of any case is very often the decision maker in virtually all cases. If it is not immediately contested, then the case belongs to the party who controls the narrative, regardless of whether you think they're crooked, corrupt, wrong, or just mistaken. 
So the opening narrative is going to always be one of those, one of three choices. It will be in favor of the party making the claim. That's the usual opening narrative. Or in some cases, it can be in favor of the party defending the claim. Or the third choice is that it will be that there are contested issues that must be decided based on evidence. Your goal is to get into the third category by immediately bringing issues to the judge's attention as early as possible in the litigation, by filings, by appearances, etc. In foreclosures, you lose if the opening narrative, narrative simply favors the lawyer who's filed the claim. If the court is not aware of any contrary view, the judge has no choice but to follow that narrative. You won't get to the point where the opening narrative favors the home the homeowners. If that's ever happened, I've never heard of it, but let's just say it's extremely rare that that would happen. But you can usually get to the opening narrative that the issues are not yet established and are still undecided. But that takes work. If you just let it slide, which is what most people do, and there's a reason for that, then you're falling further and further behind. The biggest mistake homeowners make is not raising the dispute at a time when it would count, which is very early in the litigation, even before litigation. While they are still getting their bearings in connection with their transaction before litigation or in the courtroom, the case is already being set up for being decided. And the rest of the action will simply be going through the motions of what's called due process. The purpose of having rules and laws governing the admission of evidence to prove something in court proceedings is to get as close as possible to 100% reliability. So if the issue in a, a case is whether a traffic light was green, the trier of evidence, whether it's a jury or a judge, should be pretty convinced that the light was green or red or whatever the issue is. And they reach that conclusion based upon the credibility and reliability of witnesses and exhibits. The obvious goal is to render a judgment that resolves the dispute with accurate findings of fact. Reliability is a function of many variables and it incorporates credibility. The first one is that the source of information is independent and has no stake in the outcome of litigation. If that is true, then the source has no motivation to lie or mislead the court. It doesn't matter to them who wins, then you can assume that they have no particular reason to lie or mislead. If it is not true, then any inferences or presumptions arising from the information offered by that source should either be not 
not or never applied or sparingly applied only in the event that there's evidence of corroboration of the truth of the matter that has been asserted. Like I just said, the light was green. Um, so you would need some other best or real evidence that also asserts the truth of the matter asserted by the lawyer who is the proponent of that intended fact that the light was green. So you could have a witness, sketchy credibility. It, it would help always if you also had another witness or a picture, maybe it wasn't that clear, but clear enough, something that corroborates the witness or the exhibit. But parties or their affiliates may also be a source of information that is admitted as evidence. And that's where the more complex rules are used, since we know that the parties do have a stake in the outcome of litigation and therefore have an obvious motive to lie or mislead. And by the way, if everybody who lied in court was uh, prosecuted and convicted for perjury, everybody who's ever appeared in court, with very few exceptions, would be serving prison time today. Another variable is whether the source of information was competent to provide the information on the event in question. Basic rules of competency are oath, they take an oath, perception, they saw, heard, felt something, whatever. They remember it, and they have the ability to articulate what they personally saw, heard, felt, etc. Anyone can take an oath, but only with pe people with personal knowledge of something can testify to the truth that the matter that is being proffered by the other side actually exists or is in some status at the time it was observed. If the witness was in Vietnam at the time of an accident in Miami, he may be right that the traffic light was green. Maybe somebody told him. But he can't testify about it because he wasn't there. So he's not competent because he did not personally see, hear, feel, whatever. The only way he could have any information is through hearsay, a statement made to him by some other person. In that case, it is the other person who might be able to testify, but the first proposed witness who was not present may not testify. And yet, <clears throat> many such people do testify because the other side fails to what? Object. So not to put too fine a point on it, even if the light was green, if the person who saw the light cannot testify and there's no other evidence, then there is no admissible evidence that would prove the truth of the matter asserted, that the light was green. Hence, the proof fails even if the light was in fact green. 
is a reason I'm going through this with you. If the case hinges on whether the light was green, the case or claim fails. That's our legal system. There must be a system of rules and laws governing evidence or else we end up with just hurling accusations at each other. So if the case hinges on whether the light was green, the case or claim fails if there's no evidence to show that the light was green. Knowing somehow otherwise that it was green is irrelevant. It doesn't come into the courtroom. And foreclosure cases hinge on whether or not there exists an unpaid loan account receivable on the books and records of an identified creditor who owns the underlying obligation because it or he or they paid for it. The exception to what I said is if the light was red and the defending party admits it is green, either impliedly or directly, then for the purposes of the case, the color of the light is no longer an issue. And the court will presume the light was green because it's been admitted, even if it was red. And that's the part that really rubs people the wrong way. But that's what we have rules, and that's what the banks are using. There's ways to contest that. If the defendant wakes up later and then says, wait, it was red, it's generally too late. So if you admit that this party is a trustee, if you admit that this transaction was a loan, if you admit that this party is a servicer, and you admit you were making payments on on the loan, and you refer to the other parties as the lender, and then later on you say, wait a minute, I didn't mean that. Under the rules and laws, you're probably too late unless you can absolutely demonstrate manifest injustice, which you're never going to be able to do unless you have a whistleblower that's willing to testify for you. And this is why I continually advise foreclosure defense lawyers to focus early on the real primary target. The only party whose name is used as a foundation for reporting on events and actions is a witness carrying a printout of a report and a printout of other documents. A, a report, a printout, is not a record. And there are various objections, best evidence, etc., that will challenge that. You don't make those challenges, the report comes in as though it was evidence. A record is not a business record unless it was made by an employee of that company when it received or dispersed money. So a record, a business record, is 
a record is not a business record if it's not a record of business that was conducted by that company. And I'm telling you that if you proceed under the assumption that the servicer never received or dispersed any money paid by a homeowner, including you, you will find that to be the case, and in so doing, you will be able to raise a hearsay objection that will bar the introduction of what they call the payment history, which is not the loan account receivable. It's just a report on data that was aggregated by third parties who are actually employed by an investment bank that hasn't been introduced into the case. The important thing is that you can bar that evidence, and without that evidence, they can't show non-payment. Without showing non-payment, they can't show a default, and the um, uh, the implied balance due can only be ascertained from the actual loan account receivable, which is not in court. What, what all you have in court is a report or printout that uh, the lawyer has obtained and is attributing to the servicer, even though they didn't perform any servicing functions. I know of no instance in which a company is named as servicer where it receives or disperses any money. The investment banks simply don't trust them to handle the real flow of funds, nor should they. And hence, any witness purportedly authorized to represent the named servicer is only going to report on such inventive, fictitious things like boarding, which never occurs, and other terms that apply but do not directly assert the truth of the matter, that the servicer was collecting money, accounting for it, and dispersing it to a creditor. Almost all homeowners assume that that implied statement is true, even though they never hear the statement spoken or written. So the servicer should be your first target in litigation. The secondary target is, is the name of the claimant, plaintiff, or beneficiary under a deed of trust. If they're the claimant, then the money must be owed to them. If they're the claimant, then they or their predecessors received money from the company that was designated as a servicer. If they are the claimant, then the truth of the matter is that they have an unpaid loan account receivable on their own records. You can ask for those records. When they can't produce them, which they can't because they don't exist, then you have options to bar them from proving their prima facie case, and that's the end of them. And I'm telling you, in 80% of the cases that I've litigated, that's exactly the result that I've gotten. The only admissible evidence about that balance due on the books of the claimant is testimony from a records custodian or other knowledgeable officer employed by the claimant, not the servicer. The servicer cannot testify about keeping the records of U.S. Bank or Deutsche Bank National Trust Company or Bank of New York Mellon or whoever it is. They have no access to that. By the way, neither does the lawyer. The lawyer has never spoken to 
U.S. Bank, Deutsche Bank National Trust Company, or Bank of New York Mellon. There is no evidence of the balance due on the books and records of the claimant. Assuming that is the case, there is no balance due on their books, then they have no claim. The court is not permitted to guess at the injury. It must be shown the injury. There must be evidence to support the conclusion of fact that there was some financial injury or loss. The payment history could theoretically be a reliable report to prove the history of payments by the homeowner during the period depicted on the report but it cannot show the, the balance due and it cannot show disbursements from the loan receivable account unless the servicer was tasked with making those distributions out of funds received from the homeowner. Again, most homeowners and their lawyers believe this to be the case, but it is untrue. It is always untrue in the scenario of or foundation where the claim is based on uh, the, the apparent securitization of the transaction. There is no securitization of the loan. But there are securities issued and there are references to the loan. There's a difference. If the servicer was not tasked with making those distributions, then it either never received any payments from the homeowner or it kept the money for itself. If you make a payment to the servicer, it was supposed to pass that on to the creditor, right? So if it didn't and it has no records of doing so, then your payments, even if it is made out on the check to Aquin or SPS or whoever it is, your payment did not actually get received by that servicer. It was received as deposit into an account controlled by some other party with consent of the named creditor. If, it, if the so-called servicer never received any money from the homeowner, then the payment history is clearly a report on someone else's work. The servicer is, like I was talking before, the guy in Vietnam who didn't see the accident and didn't see the traffic light. If it kept the money for itself, then the servicer is responsible for any default that caused injury to the claimant, not the homeowner who made the payment. Since the presumption is that the servicer did not commit a, a criminal act of stealing the money, then the only logical conclusion is that they never received it, assuming they were not making distributions or disbursements to a creditor. And having never received it, they cannot make a true record of having received it, which would be a business record, and that would be an exception to the hearsay rule. But they don't have that, and therefore that record cannot come in as evidence if you object. And not having a true record of their own activity, they're not confident to testify about the activity depicted on the report. 
Therefore, the testimony of the witness should be subject to a motion to strike. Nor are they a reliable or credible source of information. They're obviously simply a vehicle for enforcement and their entire fee structure is dependent upon their success in foreclosures since they obviously have nothing to do with the receipt and disbursement of monies. Their report is hearsay and will be excluded if a timely and proper objection is raised. Note that there can still be an objection to the report as not representing the best evidence or any evidence of the alleged loan balance, which means the balance due and some loan account receivable due from the homeowner on the books and records of the claimant. Thus, they did not commit the criminal act of theft, but they did probably commit the criminal act of perjury and subordination of perjury. If they go to court to create the illusion that they did receive money and that they did make a record of having received money, then they were simply lying. The simple way to remember all this is that a business record must be a record of business that was actually conducted by the record keeper. Anything else is hearsay and must be excluded from evidence. But there's another rule that has been used to defeat this premise, and the strategy has been successfully employed. By getting the homeowner and the attorney for the homeowner to agree that the company is a servicer, then the tacit admission is that it is performing servicing functions. Once you do that, as I mentioned before, You've agreed that there were servicing functions, this company was performing it, and that is a tacit agreement of the existence of a loan account in the name of whoever the claimant was and that they've been getting the money, none of which is true. First things first, no case can be proven without evidence that is accepted by the court as proving the truth of the matter asserted. The essence, the truth of the matter asserted of all foreclosure claims is this. One, the claimant is the owner of an obligation owed by the homeowner to the claimant. Two, the homeowner executed documents that memorialized a loan transaction that the homeowner accepted. Three, one of those documents was a note that set forth the schedule of payments plus interest. Four, another document was a mortgage or deed of trust in which the homeowner agreed that the property was collateral that could be sold in the event of a default. A default has occurred. The homeowner did not make scheduled payment and the claimant did not receive it. Six, the default caused, caused an economic loss to the claimant Seven, pursuant to the terms of the documents, the claimant demands that the property be sold or that the homeowner redeem the property in accordance with the terms of the note and mortgage. I just gave you seven different items. Of those seven items, paragraphs one, five, and six are false. So let's take a look at one Claimant is the owner of an obligation owed by the homeowner to the claimant. In all cases in which the claimant is described as XYZ as trustee 
for the ABC Trust pass-through certificate, blah, blah, blah. That's not true. In most other cases, it's also not true, but it's not quite as obvious. Second, paragraph five is, is false. There's no default unless there has been an experience of default, by the other words, that they lost money by reason of not receiving a scheduled payment. That is a default. If that claimant was supposed to receive a payment, didn't get it. Paragraph six, the default caused an economic loss to the claimant. Also, not true in 99% of the cases. And if you ask for proof of it, they will try to get out of it in litigation against your discovery demands. That's it for tonight, folks. Thanks for joining me. See you next week. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.